you would open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. chapter 19 this morning. We're going to look at verse 16 through 30. And we're going to see uh, this morning that God does that which is impossible with men. God does that which is impossible with men. This is an incredible statement that Jesus makes uh, in light of the situation that we, we see here in his interaction with this young man. So, please follow with me. Starting verse 16, it says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for your word that has been written down Father, as men were carried along by your spirit, Father, it has been translated that we might read and understand. Father, I do pray this morning that your spirit might speak through your word and 
Lord, it might bring glory to you. That it might be edifying to your people. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with us now. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So this morning we're going to break this passage up into, uh, into kind of six parts as we, we walk through it together. So we're just going to kind of walk through it, uh, breaking it up into these different parts so we can kind of get our minds around it and, and follow with it. Uh, the first part that we're going to see Jeff, my clicker isn't working this morning. Uh, yes, that's me. Huh. <laughs> you hooked up? Yep. Might have to go to plan B. Next slide. Got it. Thanks, sir. Thank you, Matt. All right, so the first thing we're going to see in this passage is this young man's request when he comes to Jesus. We see that he, he comes to Jesus in verse 16, and, and he asks him to, to tell him or, or reveal to him what he must do to have eternal life. And so we see a couple of things here. The first thing, this interaction with this, this young man, between this young man and Jesus, is much different than the interactions that we uh, see Jesus having with others in, in the gospel account. When others came to question him, um, like the, the Pharisees and the scribes, it said that they asked Jesus questions to test him, to test him. For example, in this chapter, if you look back up to verse 3, it says that the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So the Pharisees and the scribes, they're not genuine in their questioning. They're not sincerely yearning to understand the truth. Instead, they're looking to test Jesus. The word there means to to perplex Jesus in public, right? They, they want to make a spectacle out of him, to mock him before others, make him look ignorant and, and foolish in the eyes of the public. There's not a genuine desire there, but, but rather they want to discredit Jesus before other people because they hated him. Here, however, with this young man, we don't see anything. There's no indication here as he comes to Jesus that he means any kind of ill will at all. It appears here this young man is, is being genuine in his request and his question to Jesus. Um, it's, it's a sincere desire here to know the truth regarding eternal life. It's a good thing. This young man recognized here that, that there was something missing in his life 
there's something he wasn't doing. He, he recognized that there was something that he, he needed to have that he didn't, or something he needed to do that he had not done. And he sought out Jesus here for the answer. So that's, that's one thing we see. Another thing we see is that this young man here was beginning with a wrong assumption. He asked Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's actually a very common misconception, isn't it? A wrong thought that people have regarding Christianity. You know, surely the way to eternal life must be some sort of action that I take. What can I do so that God is pleased with me? And if he's pleased enough with me, he will give to me eternal life. Is there some action that I can take to do that? What do I do to earn eternal life? That I, I deserve eternal life. This, this man was asking, what, what is the one thing I can do that, that unlocks that door to eternal life? That's not how Christianity works. It's how every other religion in the world operates, right? What can mankind do for deity? But the good news of the gospel is that it is not what can mankind do for deity, but instead what has deity done for mankind. And I'm so thankful for Pastor Kerry's faithfulness over these these last few weeks as he's laid this out for us in the messages that he's preached about the, the cradle and the cross. Last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And it tells us that for our sake, God the Father made God the Son in human flesh to be sin. That he, he, had, he did not have a sin nature. He had never committed sin himself. But he was made to be sin. So that in him, in God the Son, in human flesh, we might become the righteousness of God. That is what God has done to give to us eternal life. One of my favorite quotes from John Stott is this. According to the Christian revelation, meaning scripture, God's own great love propitiated or, or satisfied or appeased. His own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Thus, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. What an incredible truth. It's the truth that this, this rich young man did not understand. Didn't get it. And so he sought out some task that he could do in order to earn this eternal life. And he asked Jesus a question in verse 16. Secondly, this morning we see Jesus gives a response to this young man. And here he begins, like he so often did, um, he answers the question with a question. And so Jesus responds, why do you ask me about what is good? The young man, as he came to address Jesus, had called Jesus good teacher. 
when asking him this question about eternal life. The, the ESV does not in, include that adjective here. Uh, it just says teacher, but it is included in the accounts in Mark and Luke. And so um, he, he comes to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And so Jesus picks up on that description. And he asks this young man, why do you call me good? And Jesus goes on to say there's only one who is good, meaning God himself. Matthew Henry says this um, about this phrase. God only is good, and there is none essentially, originally, and unchangeably good but God only. His goodness is of and from himself. He is totally and completely and perfectly good. And so the thought here then is that this young man had, had called Jesus good as a way to be polite or to show a sign of respect to him as a teacher. That's all the young man meant by this. But, but Jesus grabs hold of that word and he focuses in on it and he tells this young man, Basically, you don't realize, you don't understand what you just said. In, in essence, Jesus is saying here, you cannot call me good unless you acknowledge that I am God. Because he is the only one who is good. And so here in verse 17, in asking this question and, and making this statement, Jesus is, is gently here. Seeking to tell this young man the truth about himself. He is God in flesh. So we see in verse 17, this young man was, was unaware of who Jesus truly was. <coughs> we also see here that he was unaware of his own sinfulness. Jesus uh, continues at the end of verse 17. He says, if you would enter Life, keep the commandments. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want something to do, if you want something that you can do to enter eternal life, then all you have to do is keep all the commands perfectly. If you do that, you will have eternal life. That's what is required for you yourself to earn eternal life. Again, this is Jesus' gentle, kind of in, indirect way of, of showing you, this young man the truth. And when we hear a statement like that, of course, our, our first response should be, I can't perfectly keep the whole law of God. That's what Jesus is teaching him here. This statement at the end of verse 17. You have not and you cannot keep the commandments. However, that, that's not how this young man responded. If we look in verse 18, this young man's response back to Jesus is, which ones? Which ones are you talking about? Again, the young man doesn't understand where Jesus is going with this conversation. Um, now, there, there's about somewhere around 613, 613 direct commands of God in the Old Testament. So this guy's like, like, can you, Jesus, can you narrow this down for me a little bit? 
Like which, exactly which ones of the 613 are you referring to? And in response, Jesus, in, in verses 18 and 19, he gives this young man the, the last six of the Ten Commandments. Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. The young man, in, in verse 20, he looks at that and he responds, well, I'm good on those. I got it. Now, when we look at these commands um, that Jesus has listed out here, we can see it now, on the surface of them. <coughs> on the surface, it is easy here to observe whether you're keeping these or not, right? You can look at your life and say, I've done these or I haven't done these, right? So you can easily look at your own life and you can say, well, I've never, you know, without just cause, I've, I've never willingly taken another person's life. Right? Never, never done that. Very easy to identify if we have or not. You know, or I've never had a, a physical sexual relationship with anyone that, that I'm not married to. Very easy to know if you've done it or not. I'm not taking anything that, that didn't belong to me. Very easily identifiable behavior and, and actions. And so this is very likely what the young man was doing. He was, he was evaluating his keeping of these commands on this external behavior. And it's very likely that he, he probably sincerely believed that he had kept these commands because he thought of them as merely behavior. However, we know that there's a much deeper, there's a much fuller understanding of these commands. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that anger with the brother is tantamount to murder. Adultery is not only a physical sin, but includes lusting in, in the mind and in the heart. So then these commands extend beyond the physical uh, observable behavior to, to the attitudes and the intentions of the heart. And we see here that, that tragically, this young man in these verses, he lacked the ability to, to comprehend this. He, he was unaware of the depths of his own sinful state. There's this profound lack of understanding about his own soul, about his complete inability to, to, to see into the, the recess of, of his own heart and to know what is there. The young man was spiritually blind as to what the law meant, and he was blind as to how woefully short he fell from keeping it. And so in his ignorance, we see him in, in verse 20, he asked Jesus, what do I still lack? This is very interesting that the, the young man believed himself to have kept these commands. But yet he still recognized that, that, that the keeping of these commands was insufficient for gaining eternal life. There was something in him that acknowledged it, it, it wasn't enough. You know, maybe there was a, a command he had missed somewhere along the way that, that he hadn't noticed. And if, if he could just keep that one, then he could earn eternal life. And so Jesus says in verse 21, Jesus tells him, okay, I, I'll tell you what. If you would be perfect, or if you would be whole, or 
complete. That's what that word means. In other words, Jesus here is saying, if you want to fill in that, that missing piece of the puzzle that you're sensing that you need in order to gain eternal life, if you want something to do, then, then this is what you need to do. Go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Now again, we, we must be careful here to understand what Jesus is saying. He's, it's not a blanket statement that disciples of Jesus should not own personal property. It's not what he's saying. Uh, the law of God acknowledges and it protects personal property. The, the, the mere ownership of these possessions was not the problem. Um, Jesus' disciples had personal property. We see in chapter 8 of Matthew, it says, when Jesus entered Peter's house. So apparently Peter owned a home. So it's not a rejection of material property. What Jesus is doing here is uncovering and exposing the sinful idolatry of this young man's heart. That's the issue here. The fact that what this young man truly loved was his possession. Um, the notes in the Reformation Study Bible put it this way. Jesus' instruction to the young man to sell all he has demonstrates that he is unwittingly in violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. For he cannot bear to part with his wealth even for the sake of eternal life in the kingdom of God. What he lacks is the attitude that abandons everything to receive God's unearned grace. That's the core issue. Not only did he have this stuff, but he loved this stuff. So Jesus tells the young man in verse 21 that if he goes and he sells all that he has, if he gives it to the poor, then he will have treasure in heaven. Jesus has mentioned this before. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as we said a minute ago here, Jesus is exposing this man's heart. He's exposing where this man, this man finds his treasure. And so then the question is, will this young man give up everything that he owns to follow Jesus? Or will he cling to his possessions? And Matthew tells us in this text what this young man decided in verse 22. So as the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possession. So we've seen this young man's request. We've seen Jesus' response to that request. And now we see this young man's refusal. The young man's refusal. And it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? He, he came to Jesus because he wanted an answer. He asks this question. He and Jesus have this dialogue back and forth. Jesus gave this young man an answer to his question. 
But when he got the answer, he didn't like what he heard. He didn't like the answer. So instead of obeying and following Jesus, he went away sorrowful. As I was thinking about this passage, we could say in a very real sense that this young man was so close to the kingdom of God and yet so far away. He knew there was something missing. He knew that he wasn't whole or complete. So he he sought out Jesus to ask him the key to gaining eternal life. This young man was able to come face to face with God the Son incarnate. Light of light, very God of very God. And this young man spoke to the word made flesh face to face. But because of his love of his possessions, he did not come and follow Jesus, but instead he went away sorrowful. I think one of the great takeaways from this account comes when we realize what this young man was seeking. And this young man was seeking It says he was seeking eternal life. But we've got to understand that eternal life is not the ultimate goal. Jesus is. Eternal life is not the ultimate goal. Eternal life with Jesus is. Seems that this young man's foremost concern was merely Eternal life. Not in using that eternal life to worship and to enjoy and to serve the Savior forever. And that's the whole point. And so then the question for us to, as we look at this passage and this encounter, as we think about our own souls and our, our own hearts, the question for us to ask ourselves is if we could have eternal life, with no sorrow and no pain and no tears. But without Jesus, would we still want? And if so, we're just like this young man. Or, on the other hand, are we like Moses, who said this to the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Again, the Reformation Study Bible notes say this about this verse. If God chooses not to go with his people by dwelling among them, it will be useless to go to the promised land. The goal is not just milk and honey in Canaan, but a holy land where God will dwell with his people. And the same is true for us as New Testament believers. Our foremost longing and desire must be for Jesus himself. Not only heaven or absence of pain or or absence of sorrow. Not only not going to hell. But we must desire relationship with him. First and foremost above all else. To know him. To be with him. We must desire the giver of eternal life over the gift of eternal life. So we've seen the young man's request. 
Jesus' response, and then the young man refuses to follow. Now, fourth, we see in verses 23 and 24, Jesus remarks in response to this encounter that he's had. So, so after this encounter with this young man, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he uses this situation as an illustration or as an example, and he makes this short, concise statement in these verses. He says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he follows by saying, again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is doing here is he's using this illustration, he's using this figure of speech that's so absurd to make a point, right? The, the eye of a needle, the, the hole where, where the, the thread goes through, right, where the, the yarn passes through. According to Google, the, the average camel is about 10 feet long, 6 feet tall, and weighs about 1,000 pounds. And so Jesus says it's easier for that animal at that size to go through that hole at the end of the needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the obvious response to it is that's not going to happen. That, that's not going to happen. A six-foot, thousand-pound animal isn't going to fit through the eye of a needle, which is exactly what we see next in the reaction of the disciples. In verses 25 to 27, Look with me there. In 25, it says, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Or they were overwhelmed. They, they were terribly shocked at what Jesus has said. Like, how can, you, how can you say this? And then they ask this question, Who then can be saved? Jesus looks at them and says, With man this is impossible. But with God... All things are possible. Who can be saved? There's no good deed this rich young man could do in order to gain eternal life. There's no amount of money that he could spend. With man, this is impossible. Paul writes in Romans 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him, sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one through ordinary, natural, human means can be saved. That's bad news. That's not encouraging. It's impossible. However, Jesus also makes another statement here in verse 26. And he says, but with God, all things are possible. So as we've seen, places like uh, Romans 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please 
God. Can't do it. So then how is God pleased? Paul writes in, in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom, put, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more will be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, by the death of his son much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Galatians 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Titus 2. God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Man is not saved by his own good deeds, as this rich young man thought. We're not saved by what we do for God, but rather we are saved by what God has done for us. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We are saved and God is satisfied by the deeds of Christ. The deeds of another, the deeds of his own dear son that are considered by God the Father to be our deeds as we repent of our sins. We place our faith in Christ and trust in Jesus to save us. Not what we can do for God, but what God has done for us. Point number six this morning, last one we see. The disciples' reward. The disciples' reward. In verses 28 to 30. Jesus says this. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Once again we see here as Jesus talks to his disciples just like earlier in the situation with the rich young man, it's costly to follow Jesus. It costs. The young man was, was called to go and sell all that he owned and, and give it away. Others are called to leave homes and to go faraway places in order to, to take the truth to those who have not heard the gospel. They're called to leave family, to go and to teach others to obey all that Christ 
as commanded. And in the course of their obedience, they may leave, they, they may lose parents or siblings or children. These closest earthly connections that we have, we may be called to lose for the sake of Christ. But there is a great reward. Jesus says here in verse 29, anyone who has lost these things will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We may lose brothers and sisters here on earth, but we will gain, we will receive brothers and sisters in Christ. We will receive mothers and fathers in the faith in the family of God. And in the end, we will inherit eternal life with Him. It's costly, but it's worth it. Close this morning with a quote um, from Jim Elliott. He, he wrote it in his journal. Um, before he and, he and others, he, he'd be going to kill, to, to be killed. On January 8th, 1956, they were taking the gospel to uh, the Indians there in Ecuador. And uh, here's what Jim Elliott wrote. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If it means losing worldly possessions like with this young man, if it means, as Jesus says here, fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. It's worth it. Because he is worthy. So let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the fact that you have in the incarnation of the Son and his perfect life and death and resurrection, you have done for us what we could not do ourselves. Father, I pray that we would listen to that truth, that we would know that truth, Father, that our, our hearts and our minds would long for you. That we would repent and turn and hate our sin. And that we would pursue Christ. Father, help us today, this afternoon, this coming week. Help us to meditate on the truth of your gospel and to be thankful. And so, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.